The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 11, 1 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from the, over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word to us. Good morning. If you don't already know me, my name is Cale Freeman. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's an honor and a privilege to get to open up the Word of God with you guys this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, jump right in. Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in your scriptures today. We're so thankful that you've revealed yourself time and time again through your scriptures and in your scriptures, that we would know you and that we would be able to follow you and ask you, Lord, for all those who are here who believe in Jesus, that you would do that. Lord, I pray for all those who are here who may not know what they think about Jesus yet. Lord, we pray the very same, that you would do that for them as well. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to each of us and your will to each of us. Amen. Well, in the early 20th century, uh, I'm not exactly sure why, maybe because of advance in like technology and whatnot, but there were a lot of people who were into exploring the world, and they really wanted to be the first ones to get to certain places, really hard to reach places. Well, in 1911, the particular place where people were trying to get to was the South Pole. No one had ever been there before. They knew that it existed, and there were a couple of men who were vying to be the very first ones to reach it. Uh, the first one was a Norwegian guy whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce for you. It's very difficult. But then the second one was a British guy. His name was Captain Robert Scott. And both of these men had already spent a lot of time in Arctic conditions. They, they already knew how to do this. They were already explorers. And they were both trying to get to the South Pole first. Well, Captain Rab Robert Scott had actually already been to Antarctica. He had already tried to be uh, the first one to get to the South Pole. But he, did, he was not successful, and so he went back to do just that. Well, in January uh, 17th, 1912 of the next year, Captain Robert Scott actually made it to the South Pole with him and his team. However, the problem is, is that he gets there and he sees a Norwegian flag that's already been planted, <laughs> and he was a month Late, so you know, imagine back before there's even you know telephones or anything. Like he just doesn't know. He's giving it his all, and then he gets there, and then he sees the flag. Just like what kind of emotions that would bring to someone. Both the excitement of like I'm at the South Pole, and also I wasn't the first. <laughs> well, the story actually takes a grim turn because they never make it back. 
The Norwegian guy did, but Captain Robert Scott did not. Every time that they tried to make their way back to base camp, a blizzard came in, and they had tents, they knew what to do, they were making igloos and all these things, and yet they could not make it. Every time that they tried to get out of their tent, another blizzard would start. There were two different blizzards, and unfortunately, they all froze to death 11 miles away from warmth. Well, we all want to make a great impression on our world, to leave our mark, to show that our lives were truly worthwhile and meaningful, significant, to have a good name so that others would see our character and our qualities that we worked so hard to cultivate. And in and of itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing. None of those things are. But whenever our pride gets involved, we can go to some really crazy places to try to make sure that we can secure that end. We surprise ourselves at times, what we're willing to sacrifice and what we're willing to risk in order to make our name great amongst our peers. But is this all that we have? A grasping for fame and glory and greatness? Or is there something else that the Lord has for us? Well, what we're going to see in our text today is that, yes, indeed, we have something much greater and a much greater hope and a much greater way to live that we'll see in our text today. So today, we're going to be talking about pride. We're going to be talking about the pride of man. And I do want to just help us out a little bit here because pride is that funny word that none of us really know what to do with because on one hand, I think most of the people in this room already have an idea that excessive pride is a bad thing, but also it feels right to say, I'm proud of you, son, right? So, so we all use that term differently. So let me give you a more precise term. It's hubris. It's an archaic term. It is an English term. I think we should bring it back. But it's one that we don't use a whole lot. It means excessive pride or excessive self-centeredness. And that specifically is what we are talking about today. So no matter if you're in the room today and you believe in Jesus Christ, or maybe you're like, hey, I don't really know what I think about him yet. All of us, by way of being human beings, deal with this. We don't all deal with it at the same levels. And we don't all deal with it at the same time. But pride, excessive pride, hubris is something that we must fight all throughout our lives if we are going to follow the Lord. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. little context for you in this verse before we begin, or this section of Scripture before we begin. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, is settled between two different genealogies. And I know for most of us in the the room, we're like, eh, genealogies, you know. Uh, But it's actually really interesting. So here's what happens. God creates the world, and sin enters the world. And then he says, hey, I'm going to start all over with this flood. And that's what we heard about the last two weeks. And he says, I'm going to restart with you, Noah. And from there we get chapter 10. This is the genealogy, what's called the Table of Nations. This is where all the people came from post-flood. But it's not in chronological order. So if you're reading through Genesis, you're going to read in chapter 10 where it's going to talk about all these different nations, and it's going to specifically say they all have their own languages, and they've all been dispersed throughout the world. But then we're going to get to Genesis 11.1, and it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and they were all together. So it's not in chronological order. The editor of Genesis wasn't just really bad at his job, and he wasn't just sleeping on his job either. Instead, here's what he has done. He gives this genealogy in chapter 10, and he says, hey, look, they all have different languages, and they all have been dispersed throughout the world, and then he pauses, and he said, hey, by the way, this is how it happened. 
And then he picks back in the same genealogy afterwards. So the, the genealogies overlap. On the other side of that genealogy is this guy named Abram or Abraham, which many of you might recognize. So this is bridging the gap between the prehistory part of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, and chapters 12 through 50, which talk about Abraham and his family. It's the bridge between the two. Now, the other thing that you need to know is what we're talking about today is a place called Babel. This is the very same Babylon that you might have heard about in other places of Scripture. In the Babylonian tongue, the word Babel means the gate of the God. There are almost always the literal or metaphorical enemies of God's people throughout the Scriptures. And they are seen as the height of Mesopotamian culture, both in the Scriptures, even though it's not idealized, uh, both in the scriptures as well as in contemporary writings. They are the antithesis of the ideals of God. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at those again. And then we're going to talk about a few things that we'll see in our text. So verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for Mordor. Uh, for Mordor. Uh, for uh, Harry Potter, or, uh, Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, for mortar. See, what it is, I was worried about pronouncing bitumen, and then I got to that one. Uh, verse 4, stay with me. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So there's going to be three things I want us to see in the entirety of this text today. Here's the first one. It's the pride of man. The pride of mankind. Mankind. Again, we're talking about hubris. Excessive pride. Excessive self-centeredness. Verse 1, it says that the whole earth had one language and the same words. Uh, just to be abundantly clear, it's saying that after the flood, after Noah comes out of the uh, ark and he has children, his children has children, and so on and so forth, they're all still together. They're all together. One nation, one people, all together. And it says that they have the same words, the same language. And then it goes on in verse 2, and it says, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now, uh, they started off probably in the east, and then they moved a little bit further south, but they're still on the eastern side of this like biblical map, if you will. And even though traveling to the east is not literally sin or anything like that, in Genesis, it's poetically almost always a picture of where people go whenever they're not following God. Think about uh, Adam and Eve, whenever they go out of the garden, they go to the east. Whenever Cain kills his brother Abel and he's sent away, he goes to the land of Nod, to the east. And so we have a big hint here to the original audience and to us as well that this isn't going to go very well. These guys are not following the Lord. Verse 4, it says, And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So this is the Tower of Babel. It's a city and a tower. We don't really know what it looked like. We don't know for sure how tall it even was or anything like that. There are a lot of scholars who do believe that it was probably something like a Babylonian ziggurat, which like maybe if you're like me, you remember it from like fifth grade social studies or something or, or world history. It's these big Mesa-like 
towers that really don't look very impressive compared to our uh, skyscrapers, right? But back in the day, these were a very big deal, and they were often also temples. And so this wasn't just like a big city and a big tower. It had spiritual undertones. Because it says that it had its top in the heavens, literally in Hebrew, it's rosh, it means head, had its head in the heavens, which of course God is everywhere, he's um, omnipresent, but heaven is viewed as the throne room of God. And they wanted their tower to go up to the place of God. Not only that, but even though this tower we don't have any record of in archaeology, and even though at the end of the story it's left off of and they don't finish it, the original audience would have heard this and thought, wow, that sounds really familiar. That sounds like something I know about. The original audience was not at the same time as the Tower of Babel. The original audience was at the time of Moses. At that very same time in Babylon, there's another big tower known as the Esagil, which means the house with the raised head. It was a temple tower in a place called the Gate of the God. So already the original audience is saying like, hey, that sounds really familiar. This is clearly a picture of spiritual rebellion and trying to put themselves in the place of the Lord. And then in verse four it says, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. See, the word in Hebrew, not as say, to make, at least in Hebrew, it's not used anywhere else in the Bible thus far except for by God. If you'll remember, he said, let us make man in our image. It was a self-giving, a good thing, a creating thing. And yet they say here, let us make a name for ourselves. It's a self-manufacturing of a great name, a reputation, an identity, by one's own resources and will, and outside of the will of God is intentions for mankind. It's a name for the sake of the glory of the self and not for the glory of God. And then finally in verse four, we do see the reason for all of this. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you remember back in Genesis 1.28, God created the man and the woman, and he gave what theologians call the cultural mandate. It goes something like this. Go forth, uh, therefore, and be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, as his image bearers, they were to go throughout all of the world and cover it and be his representatives on the earth. And this was given before sin enters the world. Sin enters the world, he floods the world, he starts over with Noah, and then in chapter nine, verse one, he reiterates it. He says, multiply and fill the earth. He doesn't give the full uh, command, but it's pushing them back to, it's making them remember, this is just a reiteration. The mission has not changed. We're still supposed to be doing the same thing, to spread through the world and be God's representatives in the world. But they had decided, we will not be dispersed. We will stay in one place. We will not follow the mission of God. We will follow our own mission. We will not live for the sake of the name of the Lord. We will live for the sake of our own name. And we will even build a tower to try to rise to the place of God. Pride will always lead us to a different mission. Maybe just ask yourself for a second, what, what mission am I on? 
what mission do I believe that I'm on? And what evidences do I have for that? So often we want to follow God, but not fully. We'll take some parts of the scriptures and we'll say, hey, we're going to follow that. I'm going to follow that, but I'm not going to follow this thing over here. And what we're really saying at the end of the day, whenever we do that, is we're saying, hey, listen, these parts of the Bible will probably please God while I'm also on my own mission. But I'm not going to fully give myself to him. I'm not going to fully give myself to the mission. We don't normally think about it so clearly as that, but so often if we think about it and we look for artifacts in our lives, we can see that. Just think about what does my calendar say about the mission that I'm on, the way that I spend my time? What does my bank account say about the mission I'm on, what I value, what I spend money on, what I don't spend money on, my generosity? Or if, Lord forbid, anyone in this room were to pass away in the next 24 hours, just imagine your friends and your family come together and they're creating a eulogy for you and they're trying to properly display what your life was about. Would the mission of God make the cut? These are things that I've been wrestling with all week, but I do want you guys to wrestle with them as well. But now that you've seen what man in his own effort did to ascend to heaven, Let's now see what the Lord did whenever he descended to the earth. This is verse five. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. See, it says that he had to descend down from heaven. You see, this was supposed to be a tower that reached its way all the way to the heights to where God was in the heavens. And it says as a mockery and as a joke that the Lord had to come down to see it. Now, of course, God is uh, all-powerful. He doesn't need to come down to see anything. He fully knows, but that's the joke. It's like saying like, oh, that's a very fine tower. Let me get a little closer. I can't see it. You know? He descends to see this tiny tower, and then he gives his divine assessment in verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, if this is the only part of scripture that we have, we might think at least at first breath, like maybe God is scared of humanity. Oh, they, they could do anything and nothing would be impossible. But of course, we have the full weight of scripture to say that that is not true. God is not scared of me or you or anybody. And also, if we just look in this one section of scripture, they couldn't even build the tower they were trying to build. So this is intentional hyperbole, intentional exaggeration. But look what he says right here. Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, this is only the beginning of the rebellion. This is only the beginning of their rebellion against God and so he sees that he needs to do something. And so we see that in verse seven and eight. Come, let us go down there, confuse their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. You see, what they feared was exactly what happened. They decided, hey, we're all going to come together. We're going to be in this one place. We're not going to go on the mission of God. We won't be dispersed. And that was exactly the judgment that God brought. He said, no, 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 you will be dispersed. This thing that should have been joy for you, this thing that should have been a wonderful thing, following the Lord as it always is, and yet now it is seen as a judgment. 
and not only a judgment of being dispersed, but also a judgment of their languages being confused. Now, we don't know exactly, it doesn't tell us exactly what that dispersal looked like. I don't know if that was like a teleportation sci-fi thing, or if that was something more akin to he confused the languages divinely and then they just slowly dispersed because they couldn't communicate. We don't know, but the main point is that God did in fact bring that as the judgment. And then finally in verse nine, it's what it's all building to. You always know that whenever it says a therefore. It says, therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Now, if you remember, in the Babylonian tongue, the name Babel means the gate of the God. The place where heaven and earth meet is the implication. But phonetically, like the way it sounds in Hebrew is very close to the word for confused in supreme irony. And you see, it's an indictment on the way of the world, the way of pride and hubris, because it often sounds like heaven on earth. And yet in truth, it's just merely confused from the way that God intended. And here's the thing. I don't think I have to really convince most of us in here today that excessive pride is bad. Like, that's the thing about the scriptures. So often, it's revealing things that we could never know. Christ, salvation, all of these kinds of things. And yet other times, it's telling us things that we figured out in life, and it's just reaffirming, yeah, you think that's bad? God agrees. And so often, it seems that pride and hubris are among those things. Just think about your favorite novel or your favorite movie. The bad guy, the antagonist, is almost always completely the epitome of pride. Disney runs this play all the time. We could pick a lot. I'll go to an old one. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of them all? The entire movie is predicated on the fact that one person was so twisted and so self-centered that she would even kill for it. And we can do this with all kinds of movies. We can do this with Harry Potter. We can do this with Gladiator. We can do this with Mean Girls. I can do this all day, okay? <laughs> Got you on that one. But, but the main point is that we know for the most part, there's few of us that might argue otherwise, but we know for the most part, even if we don't know Christ, so often we see pride in others and we know that that's not a good thing. And yet, we all build our own little prideful towers again and again, try to put ourselves in the place of God. I have done it. I will do it. And it may be that you would also say that you've done it too. Maybe ask yourself, what tower am I building? Maybe it's the tower of morality, like my own personal morality. Like God says to do this, but I think that that is not right. And I'm going to do this thing over here that he says to never do. Well, Essentially what we're saying whenever we do that is we're building this giant tower of morality, of our own self-serving morality. We're saying, hey God, listen up. There's a new God in heaven. I have my head in the heavens. Please move over. Where's my throne? And that's essentially what we say every time we do this. But God will not abide this. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But ask yourself, what kind of tower might I be building in my life? Maybe it's the one I mentioned. Maybe it's a different one. But we all have a tendency to do this. 
We've talked a lot today about the last great judgment that's in this prehistory of Genesis, but now I want to shift to the good news in this passage, which is the grace and the blessing of God. So it's grace and it's hope that, God, that man will never stop the will of the Lord. Now, if you remember in Genesis 1.28, he says, go therefore, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And then man said no, and then man said no again. And at the very end, even though God judges them and he spreads them out, he's actually taking care of his will. He's saying, no, 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 my will is going to be done. You will be dispersed throughout the world. And this is such good news because his promise in Genesis 3.15, that one day there would be someone who would come and crush the serpent's head, taking care of sin and death forever, was going to come through that exact commandment. Because he said, no, listen, you're going to multiply, you're going to fill the earth, and through that filling and through these peoples, the promised Savior is going to come. And for those of us who place our faith in him, we know that one day this curse is going to be lifted. We put our hope not merely in the idea of raising ourselves to the heights of heavens in a tower, but one day we're going to have our eyes on a city that doesn't reach up to heaven, but it's actually given down from heaven, as Revelation says. And in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, we hear this, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain by the blood you ransomed people for God, and from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Even though God went through with his judgment and he dispersed them and he confused their language, one day he's going to bring them all back together. Here they are, the end of the story. We will all be together in unity in Christ. Every tribe, every language, and every tongue will praise his name as they were always supposed to do. And so we can put our hope in this. Whenever we uh, turn on the news, and we see things, or we turn on the internet, and we see things that we hear people making claims like, oh, well, church attendance is going down in the West, and, and this should really make you see that you're on the losing side, and all of these things. Well, we can, of course, go to the statistics that show that's actually rising in a lot of other places in the world, and globally it's on the rise, and that can make us feel good, and that is good. But also, whenever we hear those things, before we check the stats, we can just say, I know that God's will is going to happen, and no man's going to stop that. And here's the funny thing. What they wanted, God was ready to give them if they would only follow him. In Genesis 12, we run into this guy named Abram, and God called him to leave the land of Ur the Chaldeans. This is Bible speak uh, to just say another way of saying that same exact region of Babylon. It's like saying Oklahoma is the sooner state. It's just a different way to say it. He says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation, what they wanted, and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's literally the next chapter. They wanted to steal the blessing of God on their own mission and to be their own gods. And yet God merely says, hey, listen, the blessing is here. You just have to follow me and know that I am God in the heavens. So we have to let the Lord give you a name. Let the Lord give you a great name. I'm not talking about like four easy steps to making God uh, make all of your life prosper the way that you want. 
I'm talking about giving your life away to the Lord to be on his mission for his name and in turn receiving the blessing he did create for you in Christ Jesus. Only the Lord can give us a name, an identity as his people, and that name is his son, Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Two ways. First one is by repenting of pride. Repenting is a changing of your ways. In this case, it's a changing of your ways to cease from trying to be God and instead to submit to his will. There's all different ways that this could look, but even though it's difficult, by the power of the Spirit, it's, it's not hard to understand. In fact, it's easy to understand. Just take, for example, the mom that um, really puts all of her hope and dreams, not just that, but also the weight of her great name on her children. My children have to serve me in a certain way so that I am seen in a particular light, that my name would be great. Just imagine it's, it's the mom that has the kids that are older who have to be absolutely perfect at everything, sports and art and music and all of these things. The younger kids, they don't have a big thing that they have to fulfill or anything like that. They just have to never disobey in public and they have to, um, in terms of child development, develop faster than all of their peers. But then imagine that that very same woman is a believer in Jesus Christ. And she has the Holy Spirit in her and she is convicted by the Spirit that she's actually living for her own name and her own pride, her own glory. It's as simple, though difficult, but it's as simple as then going to your community group, taking your Christian sister and saying, hey, the Lord has convicted me that I am living for my own name and my own pride. Would you pray with me? It's very difficult, but it's easy to understand and worth it. But the second way that we can do this is by, is by cultivating humility. Humility is to have truly a right view of oneself. It's a low view of oneself. It's not to squish you down in all of your glory into a compact version of yourself. Instead, it's the right view of yourself that you are actually not God, that you are below him, even though you still have the value, dignity, and worth of being his image bearers and his creations and his children if you believe in him. And if anybody in the world had any kind of a right to walk in here and live from pride, to live as the person who's in charge and call others to serve him, it would be Jesus Christ, who is actually God and man. But here is what his earthly ministry was characterized by Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So what we have here is our great Savior showing us the complete epitome of humility. And if even God humbled himself, then surely we as his children and his servants and his image bearers should do the very same thing. And this can look a lot of different ways. I think of a man who just works a normal job, not a church job or anything like that. Maybe a business owner who 
his head hits the pillow every single night and he's exhausted. But he's not exhausted because he's been living for his own greedy gain. He's exhausted because in every facet of his life, he's living to serve the Lord. He's got employees, but he doesn't just view them as hired hands. He views them as image bearers with value and dignity and worth. And he knows that even though they are his employees, he is not the first and foremost most important part of this life or this equation, but it's the glory of Jesus in that. And he's looking to bless his employees and looking to make the name of Jesus great rather than just to make his name great. It could look like that. It could look like other ways. But then there's the ultimate giving of your life to him in the cultivating of humility. If a person says that they believe in Jesus Christ, what they're saying is, I was once in the same vein and the same pride as the people of the Tower of Babel, and I was trying to do things that I ought not do, and I was trying to put myself in the place of God and make my name great, but then I found Jesus Christ. And he has saved me from my sins and I have now put my life under his will. I have humbled myself, though not perfectly. We're always struggling on this side of glory. But I've humbled myself enough to say that I cannot be perfect and it cannot be about my name, but it must be about his name. So you might be in the room today and you're like, man, I don't know what I believe about this Jesus guy yet. And I just want to say very clearly and directly to you that we were all once there and we were all once building towers and whether you know it or not you are building a tower my friend to try to be God in your own life and yet the good news is is that there's something way better than that out there it's living a life in humility to Jesus we've all built our own ways to replace God but we've seen Jesus which is the only place that heaven and earth meet Acts 4 tells us that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But to everyone, what tower is the Lord calling you away from today? Where is he asking you to lay down the hammer and the chisel? Where is he asking you to stop trying to steal a great name for yourself and instead receive the name that he wants to give you? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, you are good, you're wonderful, and Lord, on this side of glory, we all struggle to worship you. And yet, Lord, we all worship you, Lord. If we, if we call ourselves Christians, Lord, we are worshiping you, Lord, and we are saying time and time again, even though we may stray from the path, that we come back to it and we say, Lord, you are God in the heaven and we are not. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. And we know that there is greater glory out there than what we can manufacture for ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us and guide each of us. Amen.